Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Keith Law. Welcome to episode 55 of the Keith Law Show. I'll be joined today by Dennis Lynn, our Padres beat writer, to talk about Joe Musgrove's no-hitter, Fernando Tatis Jr.'s shoulder, and multiple other topics around the Padres and the NL West as well. A couple of administrative notes first. I will have an updated draft ranking later this week. Looks like probably on Wednesday I will rank the top 50 prospects in this year's draft class. Also, my second book, The Inside Game, Bad Calls, Strange Moves, and What Baseball Behavior Teaches Us About Ourselves, is now out in paperback. If you would like to get a signed copy, Midtown Scholar in Harrisburg has several dozen signed copies left. I signed a huge stack for them. You can go to their website, which I believe is just midtownscholar.com, and make a purchase there. You can look through on my Twitter feed or on my personal site. I've also linked directly to the page that lets you buy signed copies. It is midtownscholar.com. I just checked to confirm, and for once, I got it right. Or if you just want to get any copy of the book, just call your local bookstore or go to bookshop.org. It is in stock multiple places all across the country. Now, it's my pleasure to be joined by my colleague, Dennis Lynn. Dennis covers the Padres for us here at The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Dennis, T-L-I-N. Dennis, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Keith. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How about you? Doing well. Doing well. So let's talk about there's a lot of news just out of Padre land. We'll do Padre stuff first and some other other topics in baseball after that. But first, let's talk about Joe Musgrove ending the streak. The Padres have the, had the longest uh, no-hitter drought of any team in Major League Baseball. Uh, general thoughts. I know you wrote a column. Folks who haven't seen it should go to The Athletic or on the app. You can see Dennis wrote about it the next day. Uh, general thoughts on... Musgrove in particular and how he really how how he looked that night what you saw from him you've now seen him I guess two or three times a little bit in spring training it, did he look different to you do you feel like he had uh, different stuff or a different approach what kind of went into that night becoming what it was well my first thought before it happened was that if it was going to happen it would probably be a combined no hitter for the Padres <laughs> just based on the way the game is moving these days how it's moved the past I don't know 10 20 years um, yep. So for a guy to throw 
112 pitches, second uh, second start of the season, throw almost exclusively breaking balls. Um, that speaks a lot to how Joe Musgrove's game has changed in the past year or two and how the Padres, how they picked up on that and how they really targeted that in the trade. I mean, arguably, they give up more for, for him than they gave up for you, Darvish. So that tells you something about how, how highly they value him. But, um, you know, obviously really impressive. Again, I thought it was going to be multiple relievers if the Padres are ever to do it. But just for Musgrove to do it and the way he did it, and granted the Rangers might be the worst line for baseball, as you know, but... <laughs> <laughs> Potteries have faced a lot of bad teams. Uh, they've been a bad team themselves for decades, and they've never done it. So for for the hometown guy to do it in the game, 8,206 regular season-wise, I thought it was a perfect storyline. Yeah, that was interesting you bring up the change in Musgrove's approach because I saw Musgrove, for listeners who don't know, he's local kid. I saw him in high school, which has got to be nine or ten years ago now, and it was all fastball. That's really what he had. He was a strong kid. He had arm strength. He had size. But the secondary stuff really wasn't there. And it's interesting. I'd like to see that evolution and see the change in how the Padre is. The Padre is picking up on the change in how he's pitching um, or how, the, how best to use the stuff that he has uh, is really interesting, especially because I think of the Padres as a team. I mean, AJ Preller, you and I were talking off air too, talking about Preller's you know, he's thought of as a guy who's obsessed with velocity. And here's a guy who has good velocity, but his real approach was to go heavy on the off-speed stuff. Yeah, that's true. But I also think he's maybe changed his mind just a little bit over the years. Um, he has a guy in Dave Cameron in the front office who's pretty influential, who's espoused a lot of these newer ideals. So I think AJ's definitely taken notice of that. And Larry Rothschild was kind of the guy in New York who oversaw the Yankees kind of being ahead of that trend and throwing maybe more bit breaking pitches than fastballs in a lot of cases. So this has definitely been there. And I think in Musgrove's case, uh, he's thrown a lot of sliders or not sliders. Well, yeah, sliders too, but cutters this season more than ever. And that's something the Padres talked about when they got him just, you know, throwing more cutters in general. So that's been a really good pitch mix for him. But you know, the, the curveball, the, the slider, they were, they were pretty excited about just his stat cast numbers, which is something the Padres and all teams talk about now, as you know, when they got him. So yeah, I mean, I think. You're not going to see him throw many fastballs going forward, but if he can get, you know, maybe his four seam or two seamer dialed in, maybe that's the difference between him being a number three or a number two eventually. So the other big storyline around the Padres, and I think this applies to a lot of people are really interested in what is going on with Fernando Tatis Jr., either because you're a Padres fan or because he's just one of the most exciting players in baseball. I'm sure there are a lot of fantasy baseball players out there who would love to hear that Tatis is going to be back in a week or so. And I know you've been on top of this. So what is kind of the latest as you know it on Tatis Jr.? So just to rewind a little bit, a little bit of context, he uh, he dislocated, partially dislocated his left shoulder last Monday, taking a swing, non-contact play, just a normal swing, although, you know, a pretty violent swing, which he tends to do. Um, but this was his third shoulder, I guess you call it shoulder instability episode in the past month. Uh, he was sliding into home plate head first during a spring training game as Fernando Tatis is, uh, want to do. And he jarred that left shoulder and, uh, missed a couple days, came back. And then a, shortly after coming back, he actually, uh, either dislocated or just did something weird with that shoulder reaching on a backhand play on defense. So another non-contact play. Um, but the shoulder has been bothering him for maybe four or five years now, and he's been able to manage it and play with it. But now these are three uh, instability episodes in the span of a month. So 
Obviously, uh, you know, Monday's dislocation looked more painful than the other ones and it's probably a little more severe. Um, you know, AJ Preller said he has some slight labral tearing, which, you know, tends to happen when your shoulder pops out of its socket. But they think he's, uh, he's good enough to attempt to play at least the rest of the season without risking significant long-term damage. Um, I know a lot of us are couch doctors and we don't have access to whatever images that the Padres have, but they, they apparently feel pretty confident, but they've also acknowledged that, you know, whenever he comes back and he's going to come back probably against the Dodgers, um, it's very possible that he has another episode. And at that point they might have to consider surgery or they probably do have to consider surgery. And I think, uh, you know, right now they're just going with the option that allows them to get on the field and see what he can do before, uh, you know, rushing to the nuclear option. So let's speculate a little bit here. Say that Say that Tatis does have to miss some significant amount of time. Uh, I've had a bunch of people ask me just because of my prospect rankings, do you think we'd see C.J. Abrams at some point this year? I, I don't really have a great answer for that because they they haven't started playing yet. We don't even know where they're going to send C.J. To, to start the season, but I think he's their best prospect. He's a real shortstop. I'm sure you've talked to the same guys I have. They freaking love that kid. They are all in on C.J. Abrams long-term as a superstar. They're very coy about what position they think it would eventually be at, but it seems they're pretty willing to be aggressive with guys. What What do you think would happen? Say that Tatis in a couple of weeks, so I'm not talking July, but like in the near future, he has to miss a bunch of time. Do you think they'd go to Abrams? Do you think they would maybe go to him later in the season, or do you get the sense they would try to hold off for the longer term and fill with, they do have other options to potentially fill in a shortstop for short periods of time. I, I think if Tatis hadn't gotten hurt, he, Abrams would have been a you know second half or September call up candidate either way. Uh, because I think if you're looking at, you know, just guessing where he's going to start the season, whenever, whenever the minor leagues get going in May, I think double A is actually a pretty safe bet. Um, you've seen the Padres, you know, more than any other organization push prospects, especially elite prospects like C.J. Abrams. And he's spent the past year really holding his own against major league, kind of major league competition competition at the alternate site and, you know, spring training. He's looked really good. So, yeah, I agree that he's their best prospect. And I think um, if he comes up, it's more going to be based on his timeline. And I know the Padres, you know, they might do what you would call a service time thing, but I think they've earned the benefit of the doubt with what they've done with Tatis and Chris Paddock and all these other guys. When they think these guys are ready, they're going to push them to the majors. So Abrams, I don't see him, you know, being so soon relied on as the uh, replacement for Tatis. If Tatis does, does miss a lot, a lot of time, but I think, uh, yeah, he's going to come up probably either way if he, if he performs this season um, late in the season. And I think you're looking more at 2022, um, and hopefully, obviously, Tatis doesn't miss time in 2022, but I think by 2022, C.J. Abrams is going to be probably ready for the majors, uh, no matter what position he's playing. But I think as of right now, they think he can still use some more uh, seasoning in the minors or seasoning just in general, just because, you know, he's, he's played two games above A-ball and just to expect him to come up right now for Tatis is pretty incredible. Uh, that, that would be insane, honestly. So I think we're still we're still waiting a little bit. Yep, makes sense. Now, you wrote a little bit about Tatis in the column you put up on Monday morning that was essentially a Padres notebook. Another item in there that was really interesting, you had an update on Adrian uh, Morejon, who's got, it looks like he's got more elbow trouble. Tell us a little bit about what's going on there. And similar question, do you think we could see Mackenzie Gore at some point, given that he is their top pitching prospect and is also left-handed as Morejon is? 
With Morhan, we're, we're still waiting on more information. Obviously, uh, sometimes with inflammation or whatever's going on in that elbow, and that takes a while to calm down, but it's obviously not a good sign, especially for a guy who's not been able to stay on the mound very often at all in his entire career, uh, even in the minors. So that's, I think you, you immediately assume worst case here scenario, or at least consider it. And I think, you know, as I said, he, he hasn't been able to stay on the mound, but in a season like this, a guy like that who can you know, go short or go long, uh, he's a left-hander, a lot of versatility. That's really valuable. I mean, the Padres kind of see him as their, their version of Julio Urias, you know, a guy who can do a lot of different things. Um, so that's, that's really concerning for them. If he does go down for a while, I would say Mackenzie Gore might be maybe third in line at this point, just because Ryan Weathers has really leapfrogged him in terms of being ready for the majors. He, he's ready right now. He's on the, on the roster. Uh, he can start, he can relieve, he can, he can do anything really. Um, just like Morahone, but he's been a little bit more durable so far early in his career. So I think you're still looking at Weathers above Gore in terms of, you know, at least temporary rotation or re- replacements, but Gore, uh, Gore's really good, as you know. He just, the command just wasn't there in spring training. Um, I think part of that is, you know, the rust of not having live competition against real opponents for a full year. And I think Gore is the kind of guy who really needs that. And he, as, as you know, he's also got a, you know, complicated delivery. So I think, I think there is a possibility he comes up in April, but that would be more to, um, if they want to just maintain a six man rotation for a stretch, they're in a stretch right now of 17 games in 17 days. And they just had their fifth starter go down. So, uh, Denelson Lamette's also about to come back, I think. Um, but he's also a guy with health questions, as you know. So, uh, there's, there's a lot of questions with their death now that, you know, their fifth starter went down. So I do think Gore is a possibility sooner than later. I just think he's not quite at the top of the line. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So bit of Padres history that I'm sure Padres fans don't necessarily want to remember, but uh, about 13 years ago, I guess, 12 and a half years ago, there was game 163 where Matt Holliday may not have ever actually touched home plate in game 163. We had a situation like that last night in the Phillies-Atlanta game where looks like Alec Baum never touched home plate, but he was ruled safe. And then the umpire, the replay, they called for a replay and decided they didn't have enough evidence to overturn. I know you've taken a look at the play. I've seen the play a bunch uh, here as well. Uh, what are your thoughts just generally? I mean, you can say whether you think he was safe or out, but also just kind of the whole process here. And does this tell us something about that we should maybe do differently about replay? Because I have a lot of opinions on this. I'm not sure that I have a good answer. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat, but I think the same question comes to mind that it does every time where obviously the, the uh, replay center got it wrong. It's like, why do we even have replay? Why are we slowing down the game if we're not going to get it right? 
So yeah, I, I don't have an answer either. I'm obviously there's far smarter people than, than me, you know, trying to handle this stuff, but it doesn't seem like they've been able to settle on a, you know, equitable solution for however many years this has been going that just, you still have these issues and you still see all these plays that, uh, you know, they don't want to overturn because they're so close. But in this case, it wasn't close in my opinion. And I think a lot of people's opinion. Um, I do know in the Padres case, replay has helped them with Tatis since he always gets called out on the base paths. <laughs> but so that's been a good thing for them. Um, seems like the umpires have learned to doubt him a little bit less when he's doing one of those matrix style moves back into first base or another bag. Uh, but you know, all in all, I think the replay. As a, as a general, you know, system for baseball, it's probably been, you know, more bad than good in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, I was originally sort of anti-replay to begin with, just saying it's just going to slow things down. Now the flip side is we've seen some calls, I think, in October that have been reversed for the better. Not enough, not always happening, but I would... I have sort of shifted my own position saying, especially when it's a nationally televised game, right? We don't want the embarrassment of a bad call. And then there's just nothing, especially when other sports do have replay. It's almost that there was peer pressure, right? If the NFL can have replay, well, baseball just looks kind of old fashioned and maybe stuck in the mud if they're not willing to do it. But the flip side is, now I see this, especially at college games, which is all I've done so far this year, where when they go to a replay, I'm reaching in my bag, pull out a book or something. Where's my phone? How long is this going to be? And I, I go back and forth. Yeah, I want to get the calls right also. I'd much rather get the calls right. And I completely understand that human beings are going to make mistakes. The umpires are just human. They're going to screw things up. But I feel like my attention just wanders a little too easily. And I don't know if that's something I should generalize or if that's just a me problem necessarily. But I feel like that... That to me is the biggest drawback here where, especially at that, it was like basically the, it's the ninth inning. It should be the tensest time of the game. And I'm to referring to last night's game. And instead, we just had somebody just plant this big pause button right in the middle of it while they went and figured, as it turns out, figured nothing out at all. Yeah, I guess the in theory, yeah, I'm with you. I, I like the concept of replay because, like you said, if it's an important game, ninth inning especially, you want to get it right. But at the same time, it's like the execution has just been terrible, in my opinion, just over the years, um, or just really inconsistent. And you almost wonder if they need, or they could use like an independent arbitrator who's been specially trained to do these things. Obviously the umpires would never go for that sort of thing. So this is part of their job and, you know, automated strike zone is coming at some point, but yeah, it just seems like there's uh, there's too much of a vested interest from one side or the other when you're talking about replay. So, you know, that can get complicated. And I don't think, uh, I don't think it's serving its true purpose often enough. I want to jump back a little bit. The Padres so far have played, obviously, they just played the Rangers this weekend. As, as you said, Rangers lineup is pretty bad right now. They played two of their other division rivals, the Diamondbacks to open the season and then the Giants. Now, most people, I think, look at this division and say it's the Dodgers and Padres. Probably the Dodgers first, Padres second, but that's your, those two teams are going to the playoffs and probably nobody else is. And the Padres won't see the Rockies for another month. And the Rockies, I think most people feel like, are probably the worst team in the division. But any general impressions from the three games looks you've had so far at the Diamondbacks and Giants, right? Both of you as teams, I think they're both kind of on the way up, but neither is probably really good enough to challenge for a playoff spot this year, unless they change their minds and expand the number of teams that make it again. I, I actually think Arizona might might edge Colorado out for you know last place in the division. We'll see how it turns out, but Colorado at least has some pitching. Uh, we, you've seen, you know, Madison Bumgarner doesn't seem like he has a lot left right now. Padres definitely teed off on him on opening day, which they have for the past few opening days. Um, 
But, you know, with Kettle Marte down, the, the Diamondbacks lose a lot there. I think, uh, yeah, I think that the Giants are actually, uh, you know, pretty, pretty decent competition right now. They, they took two out of three against the Padres. I know they don't quite have the depth that the Padres or the Dodgers do, but yeah, I, I still think that this is going to be a division where, you know, those top two teams, LA and San Diego beat up on the teams in the bottom, you know, quite a bit. And, you know, San Francisco probably, um, I'm sure you agree needs another year or two just to uh, get to where they want to get to. Um, but yeah, I think the Diamondbacks might be worse than the, than the Colorado Rockies, which is going to play well, you know, for the Padres if they're helping to to rack up the wins, especially early in the season. Yeah, if you get to play 19 games, I guess against each of those opponents, especially if the Diamondbacks are as bad as the Rockies appear to be, that's a huge competitive advantage. But I find I also find that division really interesting because set, setting the Rockies aside, and obviously we had a pretty big article a couple weeks ago on the dysfunction in the Rockies front office, but. Dodgers, the Giants, and the Padres in particular all seem to kind of operate pretty similarly from a front office baseball ops perspective in terms of types of players they're targeting or some of the player development things they're trying to do. And I think Arizona is pretty close to them, but they're maybe not necessarily as closely tied to those other three front offices. But as you've been sort of covering these, covering the Padres, been in this division for a little while too, do you see more similarities philosophically between these clubs? Are there any particular differences? I guess thinking specifically, since you know the Padres best, do you find ways, there are ways maybe the Padres separate themselves from players they look for or how they develop guys, or maybe even just, as you said earlier, their aggressiveness and willing to bring guys to the big leagues the moment they think they're ready? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great point because if you look at what the Padres did this offseason, bringing back Jerickson Profar, Hassan Kim, guys who can play pretty much all over the field. Uh, that's what the Dodgers have been doing right for however many years, and they've ridden that that formula to success. I know obviously a huge payroll helps, but they've developed their guys, and they've developed their guys to be able to you know play across the field if that's what they're capable of doing. So that's what the Padres are trying to do right now with uh, you know Kim Profar, Jay Cronenworth. Um, you know even their catchers can play multiple positions. Austin Nola used to be a you know a shortstop, so. I wouldn't be surprised when he comes back from the IL if you see him, you know, occasionally at first base or second base, just because they believe in his bat. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the Giants—they they hired Farhan Zaidi from the Dodgers, so there's another link there to, to what the Dodgers are doing. So, yeah, I think the Dodgers are the trendsetters here. I guess the Padres, to your point, are kind of just the team that's been the most aggressive and taking advantage of a soft market over the off season. Um, yeah, I would, I would say no GM in baseball. I know this sounds like a cliche works harder than Adrian Prowler, so he's going to keep pushing, keep pushing for Josh Hader, maybe, who's you know left-handed and would be a nightmare for certain Dodgers hitters. Uh, he's going to keep looking to uh, to add athletic players. I think the one thing that the Padres might have over the Dodgers right now is maybe overall athleticism, but I don't think they quite have the depth. I don't think they quite have the experience and the versatility, and the, the Dodgers have just proven they're just better than anyone at player development. So I think the Padres. Still need to catch up there, but I think they've made some, you know, real strides, obviously, in the last year or so. Last question I wanted to ask you, and I really actually should have asked this a little bit earlier, too, but I'm glad you mentioned Hassan Kim, who uh, I would certainly say for me, at least, because he came from KBO, I've never seen him. I had seen a little bit of video. I spoke to scouts who had seen him uh, last year, even especially in previous years, too, and got a good... You know, interesting range of opinions on him, you know, that he might be an emergency shortstop. Some guys thought he could play it every day. Some guys thought he had to go to second base. Questions about whether he could hit typical velocity here in Major League Baseball, which might be a little better than what he saw in KBO. I know it's only he's only played in nine games so far. You got him a little bit in spring training, but just general impressions of Kim so far, and especially if you know, do you think he could handle a larger workload if he has to take over more of Tatis's duties in the short term? 
Well, he's a he's a pretty solid defender. That's my impression so far. Shortstop, um, you know, he's he's filled in. He's been the primary guy in Tatis's absence, and this goes on offense too. Actually, more so on offense. You can tell that the game's a little fast for him right now. The major league game, which I mean, is to be expected for a guy coming over who'd never been been to the U.S. before this, and he's he's dealing with language and cultural adjustments. Uh, doesn't speak much English yet. And yeah, the velocity is probably the major thing right now. He's struggled to catch up to high velocity, although he did square up a few balls the other night against uh, like guys throwing 95 plus. So maybe, you know, just give him some more time and he's going to get there eventually. I know some people talk about maybe needing to shorten his swing because he does have kind of a long swing. Uh, you know, you're a pure pole, pole guy who like goes for pole power all the time. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that has to be the major question going forward. If you can play multiple positions, that's great. But if you can't really hit major league, hitting on a consistent basis, then you kind of just have a light hitting utility guy, which is not what you pay four years and 28 million to, especially to, uh, you know, he comes from a country where, you know, Korean born players uh, just for whatever reason, haven't had that much success. And he said he wants to be the first. Um, and he's definitely has age and youth and athleticism on his side. So I think it's going to be a really interesting experiment for the next few years. I, I just think, Right now, it's probably going to take at least maybe half a year for him to really settle in before we can really judge him on on the grade that the Padres are trying to curve him on, or on the curve that the Padres are trying to grade him on, excuse me, because he, he does have a lot of things he has to adjust to off the field as well. My guest today has been Dennis Lynn. He is the Padres reporter for us here at The Athletic. Uh, you can follow him at Dennis T-L-I-N on Twitter. And do check out his two recent columns, one on the Joe Musgrove no-hitter and another one full of notes on some of the Padres players we discussed in today's show. Dennis, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Keith. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Hopefully, by the next time I speak to you, I will be vaccinated. So we'll see. I don't want to just don't want to take it for granted just yet. But I have an appointment. Things are looking good. So hopefully, I will have new superpowers from the vaccine the next time I speak to you. So wish me luck. And if you have access, please go get that vaccine too. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe. <laughs>